Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Every week we pick a new history book, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have Donald A. Ritchie. He's an associate historian at the U.S. Senate Historical Office, and you may know him as a frequent contributor on C-SPAN and NPR. You may also have read one of his many other books. He's a very esteemed American historian. Um, today we're going to be talking to him about his book, Electing FDR, The New Deal Campaign of 1932, which has recently been released by the University of Kansas Press. It's a fascinating book and has relevance for the election that's going on right now. I really enjoyed my talk with Don, and I hope you'll enjoy listening to it. Here it is. Hi, Don. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Very good. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. Today we have Donald Ritchie. Uh, he's the Associate Historian at the U.S. Senate in the Senate Historical Office, and we'll be talking to him today about his new book, Electing FDR, The New Deal Campaign of 1932. Um, let's get into it uh, immediately in our customary way, and let me ask you a little bit about your background. Uh, where were you born and where did you grow up? And if you could just continue the story, that would be great. Sure. I was born in Elmhurst, Queens, New York. I grew up there uh, after World War II in the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, Queens was a borough of Manhattan and uh, a borough of New York City. And from my neighborhood, I could see the skyline of New York City. Uh And that was always Oz to me. I always wanted to go into the Manhattan. And so when it came time to go to college, my friends all went to Queens College, but I went off to CCNY at uh-huh. City College of New York. Sure. And uh, I had a, just a terrific education there. It was absolutely free, among other things. But I had, <laughs> I, I had, uh, I had the, some really fine uh, professors. And the, it took a little while, I think, as an undergraduate to realize that uh, what I really liked was history, mm-hmm. and I was good at it, uh, and I was terrible at things like you know trying to memorize chemical equations and French irregular verbs, <laughs> but I, I could tell you who was in James Garfield's cabinet. Uh-huh. Uh, it just, for some reason, I had an affinity for that, and uh, it took a while to realize that you could actually have a profession out of doing things that you liked. Uh, uh, the Probably the professor who had the most influence on me was a man named Fred Israel, who uh, his specialty was the New Deal era, uh, but he was just a wonderful lecturer, very uh, urbane and and humorous, but just had a way of making you rethink things that you all the conventional wisdom that you you walked into class with, and encouraged us to do different types of research. Uh, he had a very good uh, historical methods seminar that mm-hmm. really trained undergraduates in what was really a almost a graduate level education in history and uh, when i got ready to think about graduate school i thought i'd be you know probably would teach high school uh and i'd need to get a master's degree in history and i thought mm-hmm. i'd stay in new york city fred said no you know when i was a graduate student uh, i spent all my time on the train going down to washington dc to work at the library of congress because of <laughs> all the resources yeah, they have right. there he said if i had liked to do all over again i would go to a school near the library of congress right go to the and source Exactly, and and he had uh, uh, friends who taught at the University of Maryland, uh-huh. and so he made some contacts with me, and I wound up coming to the University of Maryland and and uh, working on my master's degree there, and I went to the Library of Congress, and of course it was 
it was Nirvana. It was yeah. there was every possible uh, you know manuscript collection, all the books, all the newspapers, everything, all yeah. this this great uh, you know, cathedral of learning. Right. And uh, I, I was doing my master's thesis on the the Progressive Party, so I was reading through the papers of Theodore Roosevelt, where Roosevelt had written in the margins of his letters and drawn little pictures for his children and things uh-huh. like that. And you know, being an historian in part is reading other people's mail. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, you know, I really enjoyed what I was doing. <laughs> one day, I, one day I came home from uh, from class, and there was a letter in the mail, and it said uh, it was from General Lewis Hershey, and it said greetings. And I suddenly, this was in 1968. I'd suddenly realized I'd been drafted. Uh, <laughs> uh, they had they had just abolished uh, uh, graduate uh, deferments. Yeah, and. Uh, at the time, I was a, a graduate teaching assistant at the University of Maryland. There were 120 teaching assistants in the department because uh-huh. history is a requirement for all the undergraduates at yeah. the university. And the university thought that all their teaching assistants were all going to be drafted. It, it turned out that only two of us got drafted that year out of uh-huh. 120. One was the only African-American in the in the whole group. He came from uh, Baltimore, uh-huh. and I came from a blue-collar neighborhood in Queens. Yeah. He just didn't think that graduate school was a legitimate deferment. Right. And so in June of 1969, I wound up uh, being inducted, thinking I was going into the U.S. Army and discovering that the all the branches of the service can use the draft. Uh-huh. And I wound up uh, in the U.S. Marine Corps, uh, <laughs> much much to my surprise. Yeah. Uh, I was not the, the, the John Wayne image of a Marine in right. any way. Uh, but I survived, and I wound up uh, being sent to Pearl Harbor and spent two years in Pearl Harbor uh-huh. and uh, uh, continued taking classes at the University of Hawaii. Uh-huh. And uh, when I came out, I realized that because of the Vietnam War, which I hadn't fought in, but I'd served in during that time period, I was eligible for the GI Bill. Right. And so instead of ending with a master's degree and going to teach high school, I wound up going back to Maryland to finish a PhD, which right. the GI Bill made possible. Right. And uh, and that you know just changed uh, you know the course of my life completely, but. Uh, I got my Ph.D. in 1975, uh, which was, for historians, was the functional equivalent of 1929. Yeah, no, I mean, it was the Great yeah. Depression for the history for field. Yeah. There was a huge oversupply of historians yeah. and an absolute you know, absence of jobs yeah. and academic jobs. And yeah. that was because what we were all trained to do, people thought, well, what else can an historian do except teach at either a university or you know, college or a, or a high school? Uh, they can't possibly do anything else. Right. And uh, fortunately, <laughs> that year uh, was we were the nation was getting ready for the national bicentennial mm-hmm. in 1976. And after Vietnam and Watergate, when people really felt bad about the country and yeah. the direction of things, there was a sense that we needed to sort of celebrate our our past. And so the federal government was very interested in having appropriate historical commemorations, uh-huh. and they expanded the size of their historical programs in the federal government, and in some cases created uh, programs where none existed. Mm-hmm. And in 1975, Senator Mike Mansfield and Senator Hugh Scott, who were the Democratic and Republican leaders of the Senate, decided the Senate needed an historical office. Mm-hmm. And so they uh, they created one. Uh, they hired a Richard Baker to be the chief historian, and his first task was to hire an associate historian. And 
after he sorted through the pile of applications that came through, I was hired in March of 1976. So mm-hmm. I've been working for the U.S. Senate since 1976. Mm-hmm. And it's for a political historian, it's just a wonderful place yeah, to I be. Yeah, I can imagine. It's a front row seat on the best show in town. No, that's right. Uh, and uh, you're, you're watching things happening now as you're researching what happened a century ago and realizing that there's a lot of continuity, that they're actually using the same phrases, they're using the same legislative tactics and strategies that Henry Clay used uh, right. you know, in the 19th century. Uh, but with a with a twist and you're watching how the, the system evolves and expands over time. Uh-huh. So so that's been the, the course of my career. None of it was plotted out. It yeah, was I was gonna say accidental. Yeah, I, I was gonna say, you know, we talk and think a lot about contingency, but I think most historians just look at their own lives and realize the important role that complete accident plays in them. I know that in my own case, uh which is certainly not as dramatic or interesting as yours, you know, had I to predict that I would end up where I am today, even three or four years ago. I couldn't have done mm-hmm. it. And it was, you know, you mentioned meeting, you know, going to CCNY, meeting Fred Israel, then, you know, the stint in the Marines, and then, you know, ending up back in Maryland, the GI Bill, the fact that 1975, the United States became interested in, in a kind of public history. All of these things couldn't have been predicted. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and, and how, how, how greatly they shape and, and move the path upon which we trod is, is really something to think about. I, you know, I, I think it's a lesson for all of us. Yeah. Well, the other thing that happened to me while I was doing work on my doctoral dissertation, I was writing a biography of a man named James Landis, who was a New Dealer, mm-hmm. who worked in the New Deal and the, and the uh, New Frontier. Uh, I was doing a very traditional research. I was doing uh, manuscript work, uh, which I love to do. Uh, and I had a graduate advisor, uh, Horace Samuel Merrill, who was a very old school historian who believed that documents were the main thing that historians should deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one day I opened up a box in his of his collection at the Library of Congress, and there was an, a transcript of an interview. And it was page 650 to 700 of an interview, and I realized right away that it was done in the last few months before Landis died mm-hmm. because he mentions Kennedy's assassination. Mm-hmm. He worked for John Kennedy. Mm-hmm. That was November of 63. He died in July of 64, so it had to be in between that. Mm-hmm. And I went up to the front desk and I said, excuse me, but where are the first 650 pages of this interview? And they had no idea. They said, well, mm-hmm. when he died, these, his papers were boxed up and sent to us, and this is all we had. Huh. Uh, so I had to go around and try to figure out where was the rest of this interview, and I discovered it was at Columbia University. Huh. Columbia has the oldest and the largest oral history collection in the world, uh-huh. and there was 700 pages of oral history interview with the man I was writing a biography. Of, wow. Him talking about his childhood, about his uh, early career in the law as a teacher and as the dean at the Harvard Law School, working for Franklin Roosevelt, working for Harry Truman, working for John Kennedy. He was Joe Kennedy's personal lawyer as well. Wow. And, and all in his own voice. And his stories that I couldn't find anywhere else. Amazing. But of course, I was skeptical because I was trained to say that you know oral sources are not good; that uh-huh. you have to have written sources. And so I constantly started to look to see: well, was he exaggerating? Was he was he on target or not? And I, every instance through the interview, I found written documentation that would support what he said. Remarkable. In some cases, really far afield, the things that uh, I, I had no knowledge of, but at least. Uh, the hunt for the verification sent me to different types of sources, uh-huh. and and, and uh, that helped. 
but there were a lot of things he didn't talk about in the interview. He didn't mention either of his wives or the really messy divorce that forced him to resign as the dean of the Harvard Law School. Mm-hmm. He didn't mention his children, and he didn't mention the income tax case that sent him to prison at the end of his life. <laughs> so there are a few gaps in the record. Yeah. And I felt then compelled to go out to interview his widow and his children uh-huh. and the lawyer who prosecuted him and the lawyer who defended him. Uh-huh. I even interviewed his psychiatrist who had been willing to testify at his court case, but they chose to, he chose to plead guilty instead. And, and then, uh, you know, just across the board, I started to interview people who had worked with him. Uh-huh. This was in the 1970s, and I was in Washington, D.C., and I was researching the New Deal. And so I would go to the library during the day and do my work, and then at night I would open up the D.C. telephone directory and look to see if any of those names were still there. And, well, this was That's a it great was, story. It was just 30 years after yeah. the, the, or 40 years right. after the New Deal. Yeah. A lot of them were still there. I would call right. them up and I'd say, are you the so-and-so who is the head of such-and-such an agency in 1937? And they would be sort of a pause and they would say, well, yes, I am. Why are you asking? And I'd yeah. say, well, I'm, I'm doing this project. And almost all of them agreed to to give me interviews, and people, including people like Tommy Cochran and Benjamin Cohen, and just wonderful mm-hmm. images, people from the pages of the histories that mm-hmm. I was studying, and the chance to meet them, and the chance to question them, and the information they gave me uh, just changed the nature of my research enormously. And right. so, interestingly, first of all, it made the book a lot better when it came out, and the, and the reviews always commented on the personal side of the, this political story. Mm-hmm. But it also got me doing oral history, uh, which I would never have trained for otherwise. And I was hired by the Senate to set up an oral history program. Mm -hmm. And so I've been doing oral histories since the 1970s for the U.S. Senate with former senators and former Senate staff. Uh, that we that make available for researchers, and I've I've served as president of the National Oral History Association, mm-hmm. and I've written a book, a manual for doing oral history. Mm-hmm. So that's another situation in which the the chance encounter of opening one box one day and finding this fragment of an interview uh, mm-hmm. really totally changed my the focus of my professional career mm-hmm. and I think made me a much better historian in the long run. Mm-hmm. No, I mean I think you're right. And that's a rem- it's a, it's really quite a remarkable story and a wonderful find. I mean it's a it's a wonderful example of how accidents such as these can again set us on a, a new course. And also I'm tremendously envious of you just having the ability to talk to all these people because it's been my experience that if you can get interesting people especially late in their life to start telling their stories there just isn't anything better mm-hmm. because they really can go, you know, at great length and in great depth. And usually, you know, I find when people start to talk about themselves, they all of a sudden become remarkably eloquent. Yeah, you know, they might stumble over every damn thing, but once you get them talking about their own experience, they sound great. And especially their glory days, their yeah. early years. Oh yeah, the, yeah. The, That's it's a period that sort of takes them back in time. They almost get young again as you're talking to them. No, you're absolutely uh, right. Yeah, they, when they're you know they're talking about Frank, they're really talking about Franklin Roosevelt. You right. realize? No, that's right. That's right. And it makes everything very personal. You know, it's funny. Also, there's a kind of methodological moment as well because, you know, I I tell my students, and you know, I used to work in um, journalism myself. 
and this is a lesson I learned there, that you know, the best way to find out about something is call somebody who knows something about it mm-hmm. and actually talk to them. You know, in the, in the kind of, actually, this is what Plato recommended as well. You know, don't read their book. If they're still alive, call them and talk to them, because believe me, they probably want to talk about it if they took the time to write a book about it. That's right. <laughs> they, they really are looking to talk to you. you know, There's nothing more beyond the book. There's oh, yeah, more no, about them that, yeah. that explains why they wrote the book no, and what I was going on. And, I think that's exactly right. You know, and I have my students call... Literally, even my undergraduates, I have my students call and bother professors and email them to see what they have to say about their books. I think it's a really, really wise thing. And I, you know, I'm, I, I congratulate you on the work. I think it's going to be a fantastic resource um, you know, for everybody going forward. Um, let's get right to the book, though, um, Electing FDR, The New Deal Campaign in 1932. I had a great discussion about this yesterday with my research assistant. Of course, we're here in Iowa. And so we read with great interest the business about Hoover. Because yes. he, a native son, of course, of That's Iowa. Right. So you begin the book talking about Hoover, so perhaps you could just lay out his biography really briefly and why that matters. That's right. Well, you know, the title of the book is Electing FDR, but the real the book is about half about Herbert Hoover yep. and half about Franklin Roosevelt because it's about why Hoover lost that election uh-huh. as well as why Roosevelt won that yeah. election. And I think as I was doing the research, I went out to West Branch, Iowa, and I went through the Hoover Library, and I read up on the literature on Hoover, and I found him such an interesting, contradictory figure. You know, he was successful in everything he ever did in his life except being president of the United States. Yeah, he really was. was a, yeah, I was going to say, he, <laughs> was he, a, he was an amazing guy. He really was right out of a Horatio Alger story. Mm-hmm. It, it's it astounding. Was a, I never... You know, one great failure in his life was the one greatest thing he did. <laughs> yeah. And he always, the rest of his life, he tried to make amends for it and yeah. to prove that he really wasn't such a failure. But yeah. but he did fail as president of the United States. Yeah. And the, the question was why? Uh, you know, he was born in West Branch, a little Quaker town. Uh, he became an orphan by the time he was nine years old. Both of his parents had died. He's the oh, only yeah. president of the United States who uh, who had lost both of his parents at that early age. And he was farmed out to relatives. He was When he was 11, he was put on a train and sent out to uh, Oregon to live with an uncle and an aunt. And I actually visited the house that he grew up with really? in uh, Newburgh, Oregon, in this tiny little room that uh, that was his. And, uh, you know, you think about the, the experience of a child being sort of, you know, removed from everything that you've known and, and starting all over again. He worked in his uncle's uh, real estate uh, firm. He, he quit school to work during the, the day for the, the uncle, and then at night he would take some business classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I compare him to a Horatio Alger story yeah, exactly, of the, yeah. the, the pluck and luck, but in all the Horatio Alger stories, there's always this benevolent millionaire who appears to <laughs> help the little lad to, yeah. to advance. Yeah. And in, in Hoover's case, it was Leland Stanford who endowed this uh, tuition-free university that uh, opened in 1891, and, and Herbert Hoover became one of the pioneer class of uh, of uh, Stanford University. Uh-huh. And he went off to become a uh, learned to, uh, to become a mining engineer. The one thing that he, when he applied, the one they let him in, but it was conditional on his improving his English composition. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, that's the one thing that he struggled with all his life. He wrote really leaden prose, yeah. but he was insistent that he could do it, and he would never allow a speechwriter right. to I change that, his I remarks. That, I found that really interesting. He wrote all his own speeches, and they were terribly dull. <laughs> <They're> terrible, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> 
So, you know, it's, it's an interesting story. But he goes off then to Western Australia, uh, and he runs uh, mining camps there. He comes back. He marries a young woman he met in, at Stanford, uh, Lou Henry, and she goes off with him, and they live in China. They're in China during the Boxer Rebellion. Uh, you know, he's you know fired upon during the rebellion and all the rest of it. He lives a very adventurous life. Yeah. He's working for a British firm, and they see him as a great talent. They bring him back to London. He lives a, a very comfortable life in London in a beautiful neighborhood with a country house and a membership in clubs to the point where he's actually getting a notice in England as someone who's a rising star, and they're talking about perhaps going into politics in mm -hmm. England. Uh, and there was always some question as to whether or not he ever considered giving up his American citizenship. Mm. He always said he didn't. His enemies always used to call him Lord Hoover and <laughs> Sir Herbert. Uh, but while he was there in, in Edwardian England, he picked up a lot of very formal ways of, of doing business and, and formal ways of entertaining. He always had large numbers of guests. He always put on a tuxedo for dinner. Uh, he wore those high starched collars. He was very Edwardian in his mm -hmm. in his background. I think that that after he'd come out of this rough and tumble mining experience, that put the polish on him. Mm -hmm. But it made him stiff and aloof, and you know he was automatically shy anyhow. Yeah. Uh, and it, it it shaped the personality that made him a very unusual person to go into politics. Mm -hmm. uh, the war came along. He was became involved in wartime relief in Europe. He became internationally famous. Woodrow Wilson invites him back to work in his administration handling food issues, and he becomes a neighbor to a young couple named Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. and Herbert and Lou Hoover become good friends with Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. And that, mm -hmm. to me, was really the most interesting part of the that story, that these people who used to dine at each other's homes uh, in socially in 1917 and 1918 uh -huh. and kept up a friendship wound up work, fight, you know, running against each other in 1932. In 1920, when the Democrats were looking for somebody to replace Woodrow Wilson, uh, they they thought about Herbert Hoover as a candidate. Mm -hmm. And they were actually promoting a Hoover-Roosevelt ticket with Herbert really? Hoover for president and Franklin Roosevelt for vice president. Huh. Franklin Roosevelt thought that was a great idea. He said, you know, Hoover would make a terrific president. Uh -huh. And he was all in favor of it. Hoover turned it down uh, for a variety of reasons. He wasn't. He said he wasn't ready to go into politics, but he also didn't necessarily think he was a Democrat, mm -hmm. uh, and he had a good idea that the Democrats were going to lose pretty badly in 1920, mm -hmm. uh, and they did. And so Hoover went with the Republicans in 1920, and Franklin Roosevelt wound up running for vice president with James Cox, mm -hmm. and the Republicans won big. And then Hoover went into the, the new administration, became mm -hmm. Secretary of Commerce, uh, he was actually known as Secretary of Everything during the 1920s because he had his hand in everything that was going on. Mm -hmm. He was more famous than even the president was mm -hmm. for some period in, at that point. At the same time, Franklin Roosevelt <clears throat> is stricken with polio, and he's out of the political scene for the 20s. So Hoover is the rising star, and Roosevelt is fading into obscurity. And it's a quirk of fate in many ways that why when when Hoover is nominated for president in 1928, Roosevelt is nominated for governor of New York, mm -hmm. and the 
reason for that is that the governor of New York, Al Smith, Smith, was going to run for president against Hoover. He needed a popular Democrat to run in the state. Mm -hmm. And Roosevelt was very popular upstate New York. Mm -hmm. If you know New York State, it's really two states, New York City and New York State. And the people in New York City don't know there is a New York State, and the people in New York State hate everybody in New York City. And no mayor of New York has ever been elected governor or senator or anything else from that, because upstate is just against them. Roosevelt lived upstate, not far upstate, but but in Hyde Park, New York, and he was very popular upstate. And so Al Smith thought that he would be a, a, yeah. a good candidate. What Al Smith didn't count on was that Hoover was going to win big, that Al Smith was going to lose New York State when he was running against Hoover, but that Franklin Roosevelt would narrowly win. Uh-huh. And so now Franklin Roosevelt is the governor of the most populous state with the most electoral votes. He's got a, a very popular name because his cousin was Theodore Roosevelt, right. and, people, and people knew him that way. He had a terrific personality, and even though he was paralyzed from from uh, uh, polio from the waist down, he... You know, was a very vigorous person, uh-huh. and uh, he, you know, lots of ideas, and he turned out to be an excellent governor. And as Hoover got more and more into trouble with the Depression, Roosevelt's star began to rise, and they wind up running against each other. Uh, and that, that, to me, was the most interesting part of writing the story: is the the trajectory of their friendship, uh-huh. and how, uh, you know, it, it by 1932. Uh, they're they're almost mortal enemies. Uh, these two people who had been great friends. But when Hoover became president, everybody thought he was going to be a great success. And one of the very few people who had a reservation was Franklin Roosevelt, uh-huh. who said, and he wrote this fascinating letter in 1928. He said, "I wish him well for the country's sake, but he's he's really successful when he's in, in an administrative position where he has one job to do, and he devotes all his attention to it and he solves it." Uh-huh. But the presidency doesn't allow you to do one job. Mm-hmm. You have to do, you know, work from one crisis to another in half-hour intervals, and that, you know, you have to switch gears from foreign to domestic to this to that. And he said, I don't think that Hoover has that kind of personality, mm-hmm. that kind of versatility of mind. Mm-hmm. And of course, that was exactly the problem with Hoover. That Hoover really couldn't shift gears. Whereas Roosevelt was the great juggler in politics, yeah. uh, Hoover was the heavy lifter, uh, but the problems were were heavier than he anticipated, mm-hmm. and, and uh, he devoted himself entirely to, to the point where he he looked like he was 82 years old by the time he was running for re-election in 1932. Mm-hmm. He was so exhausted from the job, mm-hmm. but the the job overwhelmed him. Mm-hmm. Before we go into Roosevelt, can you tell us a little bit about how, since it's going to become very important, how Hoover responded to the crash? Well, at first, Hoover thought that the crash proved him right, because during the 1920s, he thought the stock market had gotten way out of hand, overheated, and he had uh, urged the Federal Reserve Board to tighten up on credit to keep the, the stock market speculation down. Mm-hmm. So when the stock market, the, 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 the Federal Reserve did tighten up on credit, and that did lead, actually, to the crash. But, but Hoover thought, well, this is what I've been saying all along. Uh, the trouble was he thought it wasn't going to last that long, that it was a temporary uh, mm-hmm. downturn. He actually used the word depression as an alternative to panic. He thought uh-huh. panic was a more negative sense. Uh-huh. And the depression, was he thought, was a gentler uh, image. <laughs> and uh, he kept expecting that the economy was going to improve. And in, instead, uh, it, you know, it, the whole system was a lot more fragile than anybody knew. Uh-huh. The Federal Reserve made a number of major mistakes, and they constantly kept tightening credit 
And Hoover was an orthodox economist in the sense that he thought, well, you know, what the main thing you have to do is balance the budget, raise taxes, you know, and so that we have a balanced budget, and then everybody will feel comfortable with the economy. Mm -hmm. But his policy actually encouraged deflation, extreme deflation, and the, the, that encouraged uh, unemployment, and uh, it created a spiral that we couldn't get out of. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Hoover really, uh, while he did institute a number of creative programs uh, to to try to, to solve this issue, it was never enough. Mm -hmm. And he was he always had too much of a, a self restraint in a sense. Mm -hmm. He was always afraid of any kind of federal relief to individuals. That they, you know, he was a guy who's a self made man who, you know, scrabbled up against the worst odds. And his feeling was, well, if you helped people, they'd grow reliant on your help and they wouldn't be self-reliant anymore. Uh -huh. And so, uh -huh. you know, he wasn't going to prevent any other young Herbert Hoovers from rising the way he had. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, by contrast, was born very wealthy. Yeah, why don't and, you tell us? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go and, ahead and, and, spin, and yeah, Roosevelt, who, you know, he had suffered a, his case of polio, and he had to be helped every day. He had to be lifted, literally, out of bed and and uh, and, and carried from place to place, was pushed in a wheelchair. Uh, and he he understood sometimes that there were instances where you couldn't control your fate, and the the situation was just going to be stacked against you, and you needed to get take the help you could get. And so he uh, he didn't have that kind of a a sense of. Uh, uh, you know, a forbidding of, about uh, moving into new areas and trying new things. But uh -huh. yes, Franklin Roosevelt was really just the opposite of uh, of Herbert Hoover. So he, he was, was he was he was born in New York and grew up in New York and then... grew up in uh, Dutchess County in Hyde Park, New York, in a beautiful estate along the Hudson River. Mm -hmm. uh, his father was a sort of country squire, a much older man whose first wife had died, and he remarried a very young, very hard-driven woman named Sarah Delano. Who was half his age, and uh, Franklin was their only child, mm -hmm. uh, and he was grew up on this estate, very pampered, lots of governesses and uh -huh. tutors, and they traveled to Europe regularly while he was a child. So it really was exactly uh, the opposite of Hoover. I mean, really, completely the opposite. <laughs> you know, and his, he was, Franklin was, was smothered by his family to some degree, where uh -huh. Hoover was abandoned. You know, yeah, he had no family. family. Yeah, right. And so. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, when Hoover, you know, Hoover had to work for everything he had, to, but everything came easy in some respects to Roosevelt. And Roosevelt went off to college, and he was at Harvard. He was the president of the newspaper, and you know, everything was going fine. But he didn't have to work all that hard. He uh, he got gentleman C's. He was yeah. smart and bright, but he was a light, uh, airy, very self-confident, but. Uh, uh, his nickname in, at school was Feather Duster, Feather Duster <laughs> Roosevelt. And, and I think that's one of the things when he, when he met um, uh, Hoover, <laughs> Hoover liked him. He found him entertaining and engaging, but he saw that sort of Feather Duster image. Yeah. And, and as a result, Hoover always underestimated Franklin Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. And Roosevelt went through a series of crises, however. One was that he fell in love with his wife's social secretary, and uh, and he had to, and he almost was divorced Eleanor, but uh, his mother would have cut him off and his, his political career would have been over. And I so didn't know that. He and Eleanor uh, came to sort of an agreement along the way. They would stay together for the sake of the children, mm -hmm. but he, uh, she gained a, a lot of independence as mm -hmm. a result of that situation. And uh, 
Uh, and so his cousin, Joseph Alsop, said that giving up the woman he loved toughened him even before he uh, had polio oh, yeah, in, that, yeah. in 1921. Right. But the polio was a real turning point in his life. And suddenly here's this vigorous, outgoing, you know, self-confident uh, character, one of the best golfers uh, who has ever was president of the United States, at least when he was a young man. Uh, you know, the guy who liked to go dancing late at night and all mm -hmm. the rest of it. He's suddenly confined to a wheelchair. And everybody who knew him before and after said that it changed him, that he was a bit condescending to people before. He literally looked down his nose at people because he was so much taller than most everybody. Uh -huh. And now all of a sudden he's looking up at everybody. He yeah. he under, he began to um, to sympathize with other people in a different way. He began to empathize and mm -hmm. to understand the hardships that the people encountered. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he grew dependent. Uh, his wife, Eleanor, became his eyes and ears. She was traveling for him and doing things. She was out doing political work in the 1920s when he really couldn't get involved in things. And he had other close uh, allies like Louis Howe and other people who, had, who were advising him and helping him and everything else. But his his main mission in the 1920s was to be able to walk again. And mm -hmm. that was why he, he invested in Warm Springs, the uh, Georgia, and had a set up a little uh, operation down there for polio victims. Mm -hmm. He certainly wasn't planning to go back into politics in 1928, but Al Smith really twisted his arm to bring him back in, and then the next thing he knew, he was governor of the state. Uh, Al Smith thought he was going to run the state, and at first Roosevelt would just be the front man. Yep. But right away, Roosevelt said, no, I intend to be governor of the state, and he fired Al Smith's top lieutenants, and where Al Smith didn't know I hit him, and wound up uh, running the Empire State Building for the next uh, uh, four years. That was his his job in life. But that that was part job. of the 1932 story as well, because Al Smith is having just run in 1928 was a possible candidate in 32. Right. right. And and uh, that, that was one of the big obstacles that Roosevelt had to get beyond to become president. So let's take a step back for a second. Um, why exactly did Roosevelt embark on a political career to begin with? I don't, I don't know the answer to this question. I wear my ignorance. Well, sleeve. when he was a young man, uh, his he was the fifth cousin of Theodore Roosevelt, and uh, he actually spent time with Theodore Roosevelt's children at an, they were the the Long Island branch of the Roosevelt family, very active family, including uh, his his distant cousin Eleanor Roosevelt, who was uh, Theodore's uh, niece, and Theodore Roosevelt was uh, running for mayor, and he was in this and that, and governor of New York, and then he was vice president of the United States, and when Franklin was uh, undergraduate at Harvard, Theodore Roosevelt became president of the United States. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, Franklin Roosevelt joined the Harvard Republican Club to support his cousin, mm -hmm. and he marched in a parade in 1904 for mm -hmm. Theodore Roosevelt, voted for Theodore Roosevelt in 1904. But I think that gave him the, the political bug that uh, he, he, he just enjoyed uh, watching Theodore Roosevelt. And in fact, when Franklin and Eleanor were married in 1904, uh, Theodore came up from Washington and uh, gave away the bride. Her father really? had died, oh, I see. and so he and he congratulated because she was Eleanor Roosevelt marrying Franklin Roosevelt. Yep. And Theodore congratulated uh, Franklin on keeping the name in the family. <laughs> I see. But, yeah. So then, um, what, what were um, Roosevelt's plans immediately after graduating? He went to law school, didn't he? Is that he did. He went to Columbia University Law School. He was not a stellar law student. He actually never finished his law degree, but he did oh. pass the bar exam. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, you know, dabbled in the law, but it, he was actually bored by the law. Mm -hmm. And in 1910, he ran for the state legislature, for the state senate. 
and be- got a lot of publicity at first because he challenged Tammany Hall, the big Democratic operation mm-hmm. in the state, and he became known as a sort of progressive Democrat. And then in 1912, Woodrow Wilson was elected president, and he brought Franklin into his administration. He served in the next eight years, and then he ran for vice president in 1920. I think a lot of uh, the good things that happened to Franklin early on were because people saw him as the Democratic Roosevelt, the mm-hmm. the, the equivalent of Theodore Roosevelt, and it was he really uh, used his distant cousin's name to promote his own career mm-hmm. before his own personality and politics really had shaped up. So, but he but was, he did, but I was going to say, he was very ambitious then. I mean, he had his yes. set on, as opposed to Hoover, who was ambitious, but was a little bit more ambivalent about his political career. I think so, yes. Yeah. And, and Roosevelt also uh, saw himself as a liberal in politics. He uh-huh. saw himself as a, you know, his cousin Theodore had been a progressive and uh, I think he saw himself as an amalgamum of the old William Jennings Bryan populism, Theodore Roosevelt progressivism, and Woodrow Wilson's form of progressivism. Uh-huh. And so uh, Roosevelt spoke about creating the Democratic Party as a liberal party. Uh, about the time that, uh, that Herbert Hoover, who also saw himself something as a liberal, began to move into a much more conservative point of view, because uh-huh. that was the focus of the Republican Party. Uh-huh. Uh, so... Uh, their politics begin to diverge as early as 1920. That uh, uh, that uh, Roosevelt is clearly staking out a, a, a position on the left, as Hoover is trying to shore up his support on the right. Uh-huh. So they're quite fascinating to to uh, to follow their the two careers and uh, uh, and all through the campaign uh, they they how they measured each other. Uh, Herbert Hoover always underestimated Franklin Roosevelt, and, and he, his campaign suffered as a result of it. He got off to a much slower start than he should have because he just didn't think Roosevelt was going to have the stamina to he, campaign. I, yeah, and this, this part actually kind of really astounded me. He didn't really campaign, at mm-hmm. least not until the very end. Until the was very end, co- right. Was this common in those days? Well, yes, actually. Very few presidents uh, actually went out to campaign. Coolidge hadn't campaigned at all in 1924, for instance, Amazing. the party campaign yeah. for him. Uh, the, the people who were known for being, going out to campaign were the people who lost their elections, you know, <laughs> people like Brian and others. You know. <laughs> they looked desperate. <laughs> yeah. So Hoover was going to do a Rose Garden campaign. He was going to stay at the White House and issue proclamations and uh-huh. present medals and look presidential and uh-huh. let his cabinet secretaries and other people campaign for him. Uh-huh. And they, he, he really felt that once Roosevelt went out to campaign, people would realize that the man couldn't walk, that he was you know, basically in those days they referred to him as a cripple, uh-huh. and that uh, that he wouldn't have the strength either to campaign or to become president. Uh-huh. And he also thought that Roosevelt was too radical in his thinking, and that that uh, the the nation was more conservative than that, and that people would would realize that that Rose, that Hoover had saved them from even worse situation than they could have been in otherwise, and that it would be dangerous to experiment with the economy. That was his view. Yeah, I found this actually very interesting, that, that, that if I recall correctly, part of his platform was things could be a lot worse, worse and without exactly. me they would be. That, that just is a, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's a... It's, it's a mind-bogglingly clumsy political slogan. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and uh, his, the thought was that he was using fear as, a, as his main t- uh, tactic. Yeah. And as one of the Roosevelt supporters said, you can't scare a man who's been sleeping on the floor by telling him he's going to roll out of bed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the things were so bad that the uh, candidate in 1932 had to offer people hope that things were going to get better, uh-huh. that there's some chance that you know, we could come up with some programs to get us out 
out of this pit that we're in. And Hoover didn't recognize that, mm-hmm. and, and they, they just didn't give people a sense of, of uh, you know, uh, the things that there'll be a better day. He, mm-hmm. he kept trying to say that to some degree. You know, mm-hmm. prosperity is just around the corner. But uh, he'd been saying that all during the period when the economy was going down to the point where nobody believed him when he said that anymore. Hmm. Uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, that that reminds one a little bit of the present, but I (laughs) I won't go there and I won't ask you to either. Um, So let's take one more step back. We're a little bit ahead of ourselves. Uh, FDR just didn't walk into the um, party's nomination in 1932, did he? I mean, he had... uh, he had opponents in Syria. Not at all. Yes, yeah. he had five uh, uh, opponents. Now, it, he, when he got into the primaries, he won most of the primaries. But in those days, the primaries didn't actually produce any delegates. The state party organizations uh, picked the delegates. Oh, okay. The only thing that the primaries did was to alert the state party organizations that this candidate is very popular in the state. And so politicians, they keep their fingers up to the wind, and they sort of knew which way the wind was blowing. And Roosevelt looked good, and he was popular in their states. And he had a great name. He was—he had all those electoral votes from New York, uh, and so he was clearly the front runner. Uh-huh. But there were about five other candidates, uh, including Al Smith, uh, who got jumped into the race and who beat Roosevelt in the Massachusetts primary uh-huh. very badly. badly There's yeah. a lot of Irish Catholic support for Al Smith in Boston that that Roosevelt couldn't get over. And then uh, the newspaper publisher, uh, William Randolph Hearst, uh, decided that all the candidates were too internationalist. He was an isolationist. And he got in behind uh, the Speaker of the House, John Nance Garner from Texas, Mm -hmm. and sort of pushed Garner into the race. Garner was not an active candidate. He he had a three-vote majority in the House that he was trying to hold on to. But uh, he was flattered by the attention. And Garner uh, wound up winning the California primary mm. against both Al Smith and Franklin Roosevelt. Oh, no. So what that meant was by the time they went to the convention in Chicago, Roosevelt was by far the front runner. He had the much he had a, more than the majority of the delegates, but the Democrats required you have two thirds of the vote at the at the convention to get the nomination, and Roosevelt was about a hundred votes short of that. And in the past. The front runners who went into the the, the race uh, often got knocked off because the opposition just held them back so they could never get the two thirds and then sort of peel away their votes mm-hmm. and so it would be the second or third or sometimes the fifth choice person who would wind up as the nominee. In 1924, they took 103 ballots at their convention to come up with a nominee. It it was like Harry Carey on a national (laughs) basis. That's when Will Rogers said that he was not a member of an organized political party. He was a Democrat. Uh, And so, you know, they're just a naturally fractious party. Uh And, uh, And it looked to some degree that that might have happened again in 1932 when it looked like after three ballots, they, they balloted all night, and it looked like the next day they were going to come back, and that some of Roosevelt's votes were going to start to peel away, and then the the rush would be on to another candidate. And the, the probable other candidate was Newton Baker, who had been Secretary of War under uh, President Wilson, a very good speaker, not in good health, however, and uh, but a man who had been a Wall Street lawyer since he'd left the government and who'd sort of moved to the right uh, in that period. And probably, if he'd been nominated, would have run to the right of Herbert Hoover in that election, right. if you can imagine that. No. Uh, but uh, he was, however, a very strong internationalist, uh, League of Nations type of Woodrow Wilson Democrat. And uh, 
a lot of the Democrats started calling William Randolph Hearst. <laughs> and it, basically everybody at that convention later claimed that they were the ones who put the deal over. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a lot of memoirs out by saying, I called Hearst. And, you know, and uh, right. uh, Joseph Kennedy was probably yeah. the, uh, the most prominent among them. But uh, they all told Hearst the same thing, which was, if it's not going to be Franklin Roosevelt, it's going to be Newt Baker. Baker yeah. And in other words, as far as Hearst was concerned, that meant it was going to be worse. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, interestingly enough, one of the calls he got was from Louis B. Mayer, who ran uh, MGM Studios. Mm-hmm. And the reason Mayer called was because <laughs> Herbert Hoover was listening to the Democratic Convention on the radio. He wanted to run against Franklin Roosevelt. He thought Roosevelt would be the easiest person to beat. And he thought Newton Baker would be the hardest person to uh-huh. beat. And so uh, he had his White House staff uh, via MGM, via uh, Louis B. Mayer, who actually was a delegate at the Hoover Convention for Hoover. And he had them call Hearst because of the Hollywood connections mm-hmm. and give him this message that if you don't put the support behind Roosevelt, right. you're going to get Baker. One reason why Louis B. Mayer had clout was that he had Marion Davis under contract for MGM, and she was Hearst's girlfriend. And oh. so that, that, uh, that meant that he listened. He took calls from, from Louis Mayer. Yeah. And uh, eventually Hearst realized that he had to do this. So the next day, uh, Hearst's organization sent a telegram to Hearst's chief Washington correspondent, a man named George Rothwell Brown, who sat out the convention, the only convention in his entire career that he didn't go to. He stayed back, and he went to see Speaker Garner and told him that Hearst wanted him to get out of the race. Mm-hmm. And Garner agreed, because Garner was never uh, you know, a major candidate anyhow. Mm-hmm. He agreed, and he pulled out, but the Texas delegation was so furious. They said the only way they would not they would support that is if Garner was on the ticket for vice president. Mm-hmm. And then it dawned on Garner who, that he was going to have to give up the most pow- one of the most powerful jobs in the city, Speaker of the House, yeah. for one of the least powerful jobs in the city, vice president, yeah. the, uh, you know, yeah. president yeah. of the Senate. And he, you know, he just got himself in a box as a result, yeah. and, which is what happened. Uh, his support went to Roosevelt. Roosevelt got the nomination, and then Roosevelt asked him to run for vice president. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not unanimous, however, because Al Smith would not relinquish his vote. Uh, so he had about 109 ballots, uh, I think, against Roosevelt's uh, 900-some-odd. And uh, Smith was just adamant. He, When people asked him to make it unanimous, he said, I won't do it, I won't do it, I won't do it. Uh-huh. And he walked out of the convention. And there was a great fear that if he didn't support Roosevelt, that uh, the Catholic vote would not go to Roosevelt in that uh-huh. election. Uh-huh. Or at least it wouldn't be as enthusiastic. People would stay home and not vote. And there there are a lot of people who suspected that Roosevelt was going to lose the major cities uh-huh. to Hoover. The Hoover had carried them in 19... Uh, had done very well. In, he hadn't carried them all, but uh, actually Smith had done very well in the big cities in 1928. But the cities, you know, had strong Republican leanings in mm-hmm. previous elections, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, it, it, that that relationship between Roosevelt and Al Smith was really critical to that election. Mm-hmm. Eventually, Smith cooled down, and uh, he was a party loyalist, and he came on board. He endorsed all the Democrats who were running, rather than specifically endorsing yeah. Roosevelt. Yeah. And then they they met at a convention. They were a New York State Democratic convention. They were on the stand together, and Smith walked over and shook hands with Roosevelt. Lots uh-huh. of pictures were taken. Uh-huh. The reporters were too far away to hear what they said, <laughs> but 
But the, one of the reporters knew that Al Smith had a favorite saying when he met somebody. He'd say, how are you, you old potato? And so he assumed that Smith had said that, wrote it in his story. That went out over the wires. That was not what Smith had said. It was much more formal conversation. But it looked like they had patched up their differences. Uh-huh, Here's the, them shaking hands and Smith saying, how are you, you old potato? Mm-hmm. And as a result... Um, uh, Roosevelt uh, got the, the urban ethnic democratic vote that, uh, that he needed to, to put him over. And so um, if you could uh, characterize exactly how it came to pass that FDR beat Hoover in that election. Well, yeah. Uh, the first thing that happened was that Roosevelt uh, notified the convention that he was coming in person to accept the nomination. He was going to fly from Hyde Park to Chicago. And this was, was, that was an unusual thing? That had never been done before. There, really? there had been a few occasions where, by chance, the candidate happened to be at the convention uh-huh. because he was a dark horse candidate. Someone like Garfield or, or William Jennings Bryan just happened to be there. Uh-huh. But in most cases, the, the, the front runners didn't go to the conventions, and they waited for about a month before the, the convention would send a committee to formally announce that they, they were nominated and they would give a formal speech of acceptance. And that, it was a little ritual they went through. Uh-huh. Roosevelt said, the times require more dramatic leadership, and I'm coming in person to mm-hmm. accept the nomination. Well, it wasn't easy. I mean, he was flying from Albany to Chicago. It took nine hours by, by plane, two refuelings. Uh, they were flying at a very low altitude. Everybody on the plane was, was airsick except for Roosevelt. And it was seen as a dangerous thing at, at that period. Uh-huh. And, and that was good for him because it showed that he had certain stamina and mm-hmm. uh, ability. Uh, he gave a terrific talk, and that's when he prompt pledged a new deal for the American people at that convention. Mm-hmm. But even at that point... It was a toss-up. Nobody thought that he, it was a lock-in that he was going to win that election. That they thought the economy would do better by ni- by November, and if it did, that Hoover would be okay. Uh, they thought that you know the, the natural Republican majority that had won the last three elections would prevail again. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of things happened. One was during that summer, the bonus marchers marched into Washington. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. And and Hoover made the great blunder of his presidency, which was allowing the U.S. Army to drive these World War One veterans out of Washington D.C. Yeah. Uh, Roosevelt, reading about it in bed the next morning, and looking at the pictures of the troops chasing the bonus marchers, burning down their huts, said, "Why did he send them coffee and sandwiches instead of sending them <laughs> the troops?" Uh, and it was a t- total public relations blunder that, to the point where people began to hiss at Hoover's picture at the, when they went to the, the newsreels and the movie uh-huh. theaters. Uh, Hoover just didn't realize that. He didn't realize how it was perceived. He thought he was going to be seen as strong standing up against the mob. But this, these are World War I veterans who were desperate for to survive the Depression. And it looked like uh, and Hoover made himself look like the obstacle to progress rather than, than the person who was going to bring about uh, an end to the Depression. Right. And then Hoover stayed back and decided he was going to do this Rose Garden campaign. Uh-huh. Well, and he thought that Roosevelt would collapse when he was campaigning. And actually, the Democrats asked Roosevelt not to campaign. They you were mean, afraid he would collapse. Physically collapse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They thought he just wouldn't be able to do it. Uh-huh. And he insisted on going out and campaigning all over the country. And actually, 
And he had all sorts of ways of disguising his disability. He would, he had leg braces that, he, that would help him to stand. He was always propped up on the arm of his son or somebody else standing next to him. They would have uh, potted plants in front of where he was coming in so uh-huh. people wouldn't see how disabled he was. But from the waist up, he was very robust. He had uh-huh. a very big chest and shoulders. And he used to hold on to uh, the podium. They had like a handlebars on either side of the podium, uh-huh. which meant that he couldn't raise his hands and point with pride the way politicians tended to do. Mm-hmm. Instead, he would throw his shoulders back and throw his head back and I've laugh. And, yes. Oh, it's just terrific. And yeah. you know, he looked he looked vigorous and yeah. dynamic. And he had this terrific radio voice that uh-huh. was perfect for campaigning, perfect for speaking to large audiences. And it was finally about about uh, the middle of September that Hoover began to realize that he was up against a much more formidable candidate than uh-huh. he had anticipated and that he had to change his strategy and actually get out and campaign himself. Yeah. The, uh, it was in early September that uh, Maine voted. And because of the weather in Maine, they always voted a month early. <laughs> and uh, uh, and, and uh, the, re- the, the saying used to be, as Maine goes, so goes the nation. I've heard that. And that was because Maine was a Republican state, and the nation tended to go Republican in those days. But in September of 1932, Maine went Democratic, and that just shocked the whole political establishment. Mm -hmm. And so that's another reason why Hoover decided he had to get out there. He had to have a much more vigorous campaign. He realized it was a disaster that he was – he probably was going to lose the West and the South. Those are the radical parts of the country. But he was counting on the conservative Northeast to stand with him. And when Maine backed away from him, then he realized he was going to have to fight for everything. Mm -hmm. And then they'd go out on the campaign trail and – and that was interesting too. That they didn't give a lot of speeches, uh, but they were uh, all broadcast uh, nationwide. You mm-hmm. had, for the first time, you had radio networks that could give you this national broadcasting. Uh, in 1928, there was a more primitive version of the networks, but uh, the, in those days, uh, Hoover had the advantage over Al Smith. Al Smith was from the Lower East Side of New York. He had a radio type of voice. He mm-hmm. had a D's and O's. Yeah. And uh, Hoover, even though he had a flat, sort of monotonous voice, it was Midwestern and sounded more American than than Smith's. But uh, Franklin Roosevelt had a voice like a pipe organ. He was just as magnificent. And uh, one of the CBS uh, radio engineers said that Herbert Hoover had the voice of a man who didn't like to talk. (laughs) And and Franklin Roosevelt had a voice that sounded sincere even when he was attacking someone. uh, it, it, it was a disadvantage that Hoover was never able to overcome. Uh-huh. I've actually listened to some of the tapes of, Rose, of Hoover's speeches, and he's in a rush to finish them always. It's, it's this sort of great rush, verbal rush to get to the period at the end of the sentence. Right. And then it's almost a sigh of relief, and then he starts the next sentence, and he rushes through it as well. And uh, he always put his head down. He never had any gestures. It's not uncommon that a large chunk of his audience would have left before he finished speaking. Mm. They were there to say they heard a president of the United States, but they didn't want to hear that much of a president of the United (laughs) States. And he wrote these speeches himself. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. He always attacked um, Roosevelt for using speechwriters. But Roosevelt worked with his speechwriters so that they expressed what he wanted to say. Uh-huh. And he, 
by the time he gave those speeches, he had practically memorized them and uh-huh. personalized them. And their speeches were, were very interesting, and they were people listened to them. Uh, the other interesting thing about them is he had a lot of different speechwriters. And sometimes each speech would have multiple authors. Uh-huh. And that was because he was giving, let's say, a farm speech in Kansas. Well, there were some people who thought you needed subsidies, and there were some people who thought you didn't need subsidies, you needed to change the tariff laws, and there were other people who thought you needed something else. And so Roosevelt knew he wasn't going to solve all these problems with one speech, and he just put them all in a room and say, you all write me a speech that I can give. They would come out with this version that was, in many ways, contradictory. And mm-hmm. even within the, within the text of the speech, they was sort of against each other. But uh-huh. it, he could put it together in a way that made at least clear that he was going to make agriculture a high priority in mm-hmm. his administration. Mm-hmm. Hoover would listen to these speeches on the radio and go ballistic because he <laughs> he would recognize how contradictory they were and how Roosevelt was weaseling out of yeah. tough issues. And he would send his Secretary of the Agriculture out to point out the inconsistencies because nobody listens to the Secretary of the Agriculture. They wanted to hear what Hoover had to say on the issue. Mm -hmm. And since Hoover wasn't speaking on it, it sounded like he didn't have a rebuttal to the speeches Mm -hmm. at first. Mm-hmm. But Hoover called Roosevelt a chameleon on plaid, that he could change his tune wherever he was. And historians, to some degree, have said the same thing, that you know, Hoover, Roosevelt gave speeches that were more liberal in some places and more conservative in other places. Mm-hmm. But that was partly because he was trying to build a larger base. The Democrats were the minority party. He had to attract progressive Republicans without losing conservative Democrats. Mm -hmm. He wanted to get populists and progressives on board. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so he tailored his remarks to the parts of the country where he was speaking. Mm -hmm. And, And there were a lot of contradictions. In fact, when Roosevelt became president, those contradictions continued in his administration. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he he would mix together a, a lot of different ideas into a particular program to see what would work, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most uh, unusual speech he gave was in Pittsburgh in October, where the speech was written by Bernard Baruch, who was his one of his big contributors, a big businessman, much more conservative than Roosevelt was. And it was designed to show that Roosevelt was not a radical and that he could work with the business community. Mm-hmm. And he promises in that speech to balance the budget and to cut federal spending. Well, four years later, when he's president, he's going back to Pittsburgh, and he asks his chief speechwriter to read that speech and figure out how he can respond to that speech four years later. And the speechwriter reads it and says, uh, I suggest you categorically deny that you ever gave it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I say too. Because, of course, the New Deal was just the opposite. They never balanced the budget, and, they, and he used deficit spending to try to get people back to work again. Yeah, yeah. But um, uh, it, it, that's part of the campaign. Now, the, the other part of this, you know, historians read all these speeches, and we know everything that was said, and we can tell you where the contradictions are. But Will Rogers, the comedian who commented on politics, said the truth of the matter was that at two minutes after you heard a speech delivered on the radio, there wasn't a single person who could re- remember a single line in any yeah. of the speeches. It wasn't the specifics of the speeches. It was the tone of the speeches and the sense of direction that you were giving. You know, it's not a roadmap but a general sense that we're going to be moving ahead and that we are going to deal with this issue, and I've got lots of ideas for it, and we're going to see what works. Yep. And that's what came across in Roosevelt's speeches. Uh-huh. I see. So what happened on Election Day? 
Well, election day, the uh, the uh, nation went came out and wrote, voted for Roosevelt, fifty seven percent to thirty nine percent for Hoover. Mm. They, there were third parties, and the, both the socialists and communists thought that they were going to get a big chunk of the vote. They anticipated the communists thought they would get a million votes. The socialists thought they would probably get maybe ten percent of the vote. Uh, combined, all the third parties got less than three percent of the mm-hmm. vote. Uh, in fact, in the matter, the voters didn't want radical alternatives. They they wanted to put the economy back on its feet, not rip it apart. Mm-hmm. And, he, and uh, Norman Thomas was a socialist candidate. He actually ran behind the rest of his ticket. Uh, people would vote for a socialist for governor or for senator, but they voted for Franklin Roosevelt. They, they didn't trust the system. They were afraid that Hoover might, you know, actually win. And so they um, uh, they split their vote, and Roosevelt benefited that way. Hoover's people had been saying that he was coming back, that his campaign in October had really gotten things back on its feet and all the rest of it. And he had a chance. And I think that probably worked against him to some degree because Mm -hmm. people just didn't want him back in. And it it tightened up Roosevelt's support, even among wealthy groups. Mm -hmm. Uh, Roosevelt probably did well among all economic groups in 1932. The reason we know this is because Literary Digest did a poll that it was fairly accurate in 1932. And they had sent out uh, the polling information to people who had cars and who had telephones. And even in 1932, that was essentially a very small percentage of the population, mm-hmm. the wealthy percentage. And uh, But Roosevelt still won by about the 57, 39%. So that means that the rich, the middle class, and the poor were voting in the same way. Uh-huh. In 1936, the Literary Digest does the exact same poll. It shows Alf Landon, the Republican candidate, is going to win in a landslide. Uh-huh. And, of course, Roosevelt wins in a landslide. Yeah. They figure at that point the rich had decided that Roosevelt was going to tax them too much and had switched back to the Republican Party. And the poor and the, and the lower middle class had decided that Roosevelt was for them, and yeah. they came out in much larger numbers yeah. in '36 for Roosevelt. So there was an economic shift in his support by, from '32 to '36. Uh-huh. The Literary Digest went out of business as a result of <laughs> mis, miscalling that election so badly. Yeah. Right. Well, um, I'm from Kansas originally, so Alf Landon is uh, somebody that I know a little bit about. He's a, one of our favorite sons, even though he yeah. uh, was a loser in the largest landslide in yeah. history. Yeah. Well, you know what? Can but you in '32 he was one of the very few Republicans to win a governorship. He, it was a three-way race against an incumbent Democrat and a, a, a the goat gland doctor, Dr. Brinkley, who uh, yes, was injecting know, goat yeah, glands right, uh, yeah. into into human beings to give them more virility. Virility, right. Uh, and that was apparently pretty popular. He got about 25% of the vote. But, uh, but Landon won a narrow victory. He was a somewhat moderate to progressive, so Theodore Roosevelt-type Republican. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he survived the, this huge Democratic tidal wave that happened in 32. Because it wasn't just Roosevelt who got elected. Uh, uh, Roosevelt carried in 100 new Democrats into the House of Representatives. There's never been that big a party change, at least not in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also carried in a dozen new senators, uh, Democratic senators, so that his party had overwhelming majorities in both houses of Congress. And they won practically all the governorships, almost all the state legislatures. I mean, it was just, mm-hmm. uh, it was a wipeout for, not only for Hoover, but for the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that worked against the Republicans for years, because uh, the Democrats continued to campaign against Herbert Hoover, even after, longer after he was on the ticket, mm-hmm. uh, and and Hoover for many years was a was a much better symbol for the Democrats than he was for the Republicans. Yeah, no, I imagine that's right. Yeah. So let me ask you this, and I'm sure you've been asked this question many times. Uh, what do you think that this particular election, the 32 election, 
can tell modern political candidates, particularly on the national level. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how much you can say about Sure, that. sure. Well, you know, I work at the U.S. Senate, and my philosophy on this campaign is may the best senator win. Uh, but but, uh, but my, uh, my feeling on 32 was that uh, Hoover campaigned on fear and Roosevelt campaigned on hope. And, and I think uh, presidential candidates of either party have really got to offer people hope. And mm-hmm. I know uh, that you know people want to think that things are going to get better. The person, actually, by the way, who learned the most from Franklin Roosevelt was a man who voted for him in 1932, 36, 40, and 44. And that was Ronald Reagan, mm-hmm. who was a liberal New Deal Democrat yeah, in those days. Right. And by the time he runs for president as a conservative Republican, he uses Roosevelt's style of the yeah. morning in America. You know, no matter how yeah, bad things exactly. are, things could be better. Yeah. He he goes back and uses the radio as a device yeah. to reach people the way Roosevelt did. He models himself his presidency in a lot of ways on Roosevelt, and he doesn't go out of his way to repeal the New Deal. Uh, uh-huh. he, he always says he was more interested in repealing the Great Society than the New Deal. Yeah, but right. uh, but but uh, but uh, Ronald Reagan was very much influenced by by. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt's style of campaigning. I think you know modern uh, candidates could learn a lot from him mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, they have to, Roosevelt had a way of connecting with his audiences, mm-hmm. of making people really believe what he was saying. And you know, I think that's important. Is that that it, it's almost more important than what you're saying is the way that you connect to your audiences and the way that mm-hmm. you give them some sense that you're on the same side with mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and he and he carried on a vigorous campaign uh, that across the country, and I think since that point, no candidate has felt they could stay home and you know yeah, do no, a rose garden right. campaign. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Well, thank you very much. I mean, we've taken up a lot of your time today. Um, let me close with one question: What are you working on now? Well, I'm doing a book called A Very Short Introduction to Congress for mm-hmm. a series of books called A Very Short Introduction to, and so it's going to try to explain how the Congress works in hopefully a lively and an accessible manner. Uh, and I'm finding, having worked here for 30 years, that trying to condense Congress into 150 pages may be the hardest job I've ever had. Now, this is the Oxford University Press series? Is That's that right. right. Yeah, That's no, right. I've read some of these, and they are... Uh, so. The, the, I really like them personally. I think it's a great idea because it it really forces you to condense everything you know. Because the people that write them, like yourself, are just world-renowned experts on these topics. I just read the one – literally, I read it last night on Plato. Oh, I mean, yeah. And this brilliant woman <laughs> crunched all of Plato into about 100 pages. And I was like, exactly. wow. Well, see, I wrote a history – I mean, not to toot my own horn, but I wrote a history of Russia in 100 pages. Uh, all of Russian history, a 1,000 years of it in 100 pages. <laughs> and so I look at these books, and I'm like, yeah, I had that idea already. But so, <laughs> so I congratulate you on that. But again, thank you very much for talking to us about electing FDR, uh, the new campaign in 1932. And I wish you and the book um, the greatest success. I really appreciate well, talking to you. Thank you. I've enjoyed this. Okay. Thanks a lot, Don. Take care. Okay. All right. Bye bye. You've been listening to an interview with Donald A. Ritchie, the author of Electing FDR, the New Deal Campaign of 1932. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.